Welcome back to Love, Life, and Legacy, everybody. The podcast to help you navigate these hypersexualized times. And in today's episode, I'm interviewing an old friend of mine, somebody that I met back when I lived in New York. His wife was Mongolian. Before I had met my wife or knew anything about Mongolia, I met he and his wife, and they just had one little baby at that time. That little baby is now so huge because Kone is so huge. His name is Dr. Drissa Kone, and he is from the Ivory Coast. He grew up there, and he came to America. He came to New York, and he's now a doctor. He got his doctorate in divinity and theology, but he is actually super focused on peace and conflict resolution. And so he even flies back to his homeland of Côte d'Ivoire, Ivory Coast, twice a year to give lectures and workshops on personal development, but also how to have more conflict resolution, which is obviously super important. And the reason I contacted him is because I knew that he grew up in a Muslim country and he grew up Muslim. He grew up with a super Muslim background, and so he's steeped in the tradition of Islam. And I wanted to pick his brain and figure out what does this Quran say about sexuality, about romance. And, you know, in this conversation, we even get into polygamy because that's a part of the Muslim faith. And I learned a lot. It's very humbling because I didn't know that much. And I'm guessing you don't know that much either. And even if you do, this will be a very insightful conversation because Dr. Kone is a super smart guy and he always has a warm spirit and a lot of great information to parlay. So please help me welcome Dr. Kone Drissel. Okay, welcome back, everybody. So this guy is, he's kind of my friend, but he's also kind of a brother. And, and the main reason is the Mongolian connection keeps us, we have common desires and fears <laughs> based on our experience with the nation of Mongolia. So I know him as Kone, but he's Dr. Drissa Kone. And he's a very tall, very huggable man. If you ever meet him, he's very good at hugging. The reason I'm, like I mentioned in the intro, bringing him here is because I know that he's a scholar and he's also, he grew up Muslim but he also has like a strong desire. I know this about you very clearly, Connie, that you have a strong desire for people to understand the Quran. Since I've known you, you've been proud of your heritage, where you came from, your upbringing. Mm -hmm. And so, yes, first of all, welcome. Thank you for coming. Thank you for having me. Thank yeah. you so much. So we were just before this, I cut ourselves short because I was asking you very pertinent questions that I'm sure mm -hmm. people need to know, which is yeah. about the Quran. So we want to get into how, what the Quran teaches about sexuality, intimacy, marriage, mm -hmm. all this stuff. But as a foundational question, like who is the Quran written by? Because mm -hmm. I'm guessing Muhammad didn't write it himself. He wasn't probably no, no, in an autobiography. Yeah, like most enlightened people in history, they were too busy with other things than writing. <laughs> <laughs> That's hilarious. I was talking to this one guy who was saying he knew Truvada really well. And he said, yes. Truvada's only real job was he spoke a lot and he fished yeah. a lot. And that's all he did, fishing oh, and talking. Yeah. <laughs> they, they're too busy with other things. So <laughs> that's why we have to be very careful of being too absolute about interpretation of scripture because it's contextual, historical contextualizing history thing that was say in a particular time for a particular matter. Sure. And then, then when you take that out of context and then you want to apply in a new context, you have to be very careful. I see. Anyway, Muhammad, peace be upon him, did not write any text. He received the revelation of the Quran through Gabriel, angel Gabriel. Oh. 
Uh, yep, and he will just recite. Okay. Gabriel, uh, which angel was he? He was. Don't they like they have different themes, right? Gabriel was the angel of what? Oh, it's a messenger. Just uh, a messenger. Okay. Messenger. Yeah. When Gabriel appeared to him, he said, "Recite." Some other interpretation would say, "Read." Okay. But he, that's how he started reciting, or if you want, sing in the poetry. Quran is written like a poetry. It's, really? Yeah, it's not like story-based. It's more, of course, there are part of story, but the most part of the Quran is like poetry. So he, but in Muhammad's time, there were scribes. So when he recite, there were people who would write what he was talking about. So would he have like a gathering and yeah. he would just be giving kind mm -hmm. of a lecture or from the yeah. Okay. Yeah, he will he will talk about it and then people will, will just write down whatever is coming. But after Muhammad passed, after he died, I think the third caliph, Usman, felt like there were so many written stuff that has some contradiction. Ah. So he gathered all these and then canonized it. And whatever was not considered by the college that time as properly okay was burned so like constantine very yeah. similar to the bible where they selected what what made it into yeah. the final draft yeah so before that it was just a series of different talks that were yeah. put together and then yeah. they they were writing a narrative mm -hmm. and that narrative was telling a story and the parts that they didn't like or didn't fit yeah. they just didn't fit, straight yeah. up burned it was burned yeah wow and the reason for that was to avoid to all kind of, I would say, maybe all kind of contradictions and yeah. conflict around issues. So I think it was helpful to Islam because they, the textbook became only textbook that people can, you know, can trust. But for most conservative, not conservative in terms of politics, but yeah, uh, yeah, conservative, <laughs> like orthodox, yeah, orthodox Muslim will say. The Quran is a written word of God. So yeah. there's nothing, everything that is said word to word is God. Same thing with the Bible, man. Yeah. Same thing. Yeah. yeah. That's the world of religion, man. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Even us unificationists, you know, we yeah. some of some people have that tendency as well. And uh yeah, we have to understand all people in their own development. So well, so if the Quran is telling a story, right, yeah. and you were to be describing Quran, you know, not to be disrespectful, but you're describing it like a book, right? Mm -hmm. And there's in the book store, there's different sections. There's romance, there's thriller, there's all sorts of different themes. Like, what do you think the theme of the Quran really is? Good question. I will say, I will probably say poetry and spirituality. Hmm. The section was poetry and spirituality. Is it really uplifting? Is it like how to live life kind of thing? Instructions? Or is it more no, fatal? No, no, no. There's another book that is called the Sunnah. The Sunnah is more about the stories, what Muhammad said and the law. Because Islam actually set everything up in terms of how to live in society. Okay. Yeah, in terms of law of society. So that's what is called Sharia. It means law. Okay. So anything that's going on is being settled, the resolve already in the Sunnah. The Quran doesn't have all these. The Quran is more, there are some stories into it. You will see a lot of those stories in the Old Testament that yeah. will, that's repeated there. In this, you know, but it's, it's all kind of in a narrative, in a way that is being 
like somebody is just preparing work for a poetry. It's, sure. it's very, it's good for recitation, like kind of reciting something. That's what most Muslims do as well. So, well, yeah, because I've heard a lot. I mean, we hear it, I guess, in different areas. I when we lived in, you know, Indonesia, there's a lot of Muslim temples, right? There's a time of day when they were allowed to blast mm-hmm. this poetry being sung by mm-hmm. somebody. And yeah. it's, so it seems like they're they're repeating similar, I don't speak the language of yeah. whatever Sanskrit is, but you could hear certain things being repeated. But mm-hmm. the thing that I noticed is they they, they were, were, didn't really prescribe notes or melodies so much. It was more like the words and however the person sang, but it didn't seem like it was, you know, songs typically have notes and lyrics. Mm-hmm. This is more lyrics and the notes are optional, I guess. Is yeah. that true or it's, yeah it's 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 true because the Quran have 114 chapters okay yeah That's and, long yeah and you will see every chapter will repeat certain things again and again you know okay. it's it's getting it's get it's repeated over and over again kind of like a mantra yeah the beginning of the chapter of course and they okay. and they have more than 6000 verses wow um, well, you know, it's a kind of complex books to read, but it's great. It's good to read because it helps you have an understanding of what that world is all about. Got uh, it. Yeah. So my understanding of what you're saying is that the Quran is really just stories through Psalms, through, you know, through lyrics. Yeah. And then there's a separate book which helps you live life. Now, is that separate book, what was it called? The Sunnah? The Sunnah, yeah. Sunnah means the saying... The sayings and life of Prophet Muhammad. Yeah. Okay. So but that, is it is it taken as seriously as because the Quran is like a holy yeah, text? But yeah. it sounds like the Sunnah is more like an academic distillation of the holy yeah. text. Is yeah. it taken as seriously? Like you can point to this if you're a Muslim and say, "But it says in this," and everybody has to agree with it. Yeah. 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 Okay. yeah because all mostly all issues in in Muslim life is resolved through how Muhammad live his life. I see. Because Whenever an issue comes out, they will say, okay, how Muhammad did it? Yeah. Muhammad said about it. Okay. Uh-huh. Then, you know, or if nothing was said about it, they will look at any early disciples, what they said that Muhammad's. I see, I see. So, you know, it's, it's a very important book as well. Yeah. Got it. So you have faith practice, you yeah. have faith, and then you have practice. Yeah. yeah, it seems like the Catholic Church has something similar where there's like they're based on the Bible, but they also have their own separate book for Catholics to kind yeah. of more like daily practice kind of stuff. Now, yeah. in I guess this frames the conversation to in the Quran, in the kind of poetry, in this kind of in these lyrics, does it ever talk about sexuality? Yeah, there are a few, few parts in the Quran that talk about sexuality, but mostly about marriage okay so marriage is mentioned several times in the quran in what context always in the similar context like don't do this unless you're married or is it like does it talk about marriage in like a beautiful poetic way or yeah it first of all you have to understand marriage is is kind of mandatory in islam okay yeah if you're not married this is a big problem yeah Okay, so it's clearly stated in the Quran that everybody has to get married. Okay. Okay. 
when you get married, you can actually, it doesn't deter you to actually have an experience with God. Is it a part of the the life cycle of knowing God? Like you cannot know God unless you are married because that's where God kind of meets you? Or is it just more prescriptive as just a general life thing and God God's yeah. just a part of your life? Or? It's just it's just says celibacy is forbidden. Forever. So forbidden. even the highest teachers, um, the highest imams mm, get married. Have, yeah. Okay. Or monastic kind of life is forbidden you got to get married and um, but why because of the making children or because of protection uh, from stuff or what what's going on <laughs> the reason is pretty simple because islam social justice is a big thing okay, okay? islam consider any immoral issue in society as something that would disturb the order of society sure so marriage marriage help create order in society. That's why you will see any issue related to conflict and moral issues are really things that Muslims will consider as haram, like evil. Okay. So when people get married, it's clear. The chances that they don't do things that will create some disorder in society is higher. So yeah, I think that's where the view is coming from. So it's really like a practical, social, like environmental yeah. reason. Mm -hmm. Stay married because it, it keeps a stable society, which is statistically overwhelmingly the case, right? Yeah. It's absolutely true. But what about when you are married? Is there mm -hmm. any kind of instructions as what your role is within the marriage, like to mm -hmm. serve each other? Or does it get into the weeds of that? Any instructions? Yeah. Islam has, in terms of marriage, you know, it's very traditional. Gender role is quite defined differently. Okay. Women tend to be doing specific kind of role and men doing other specific kind of role. That's how it's said in most traditional society. I think Islam picked up from there. Women are more concerned with the house, the children, cookings and things like that. Okay. And man, he's more concerned with the security of the family, providing, protecting, going out there and making sure everything is okay. So it's purely the gender roles are quite different, separate. Yeah. How does that mix with modern society? Because, you know, you go to a place like Malaysia. Yeah, it's a big challenge. Yeah. Uh, it's a big challenge. But as I said earlier, you have Muslims who are very open-minded to the world that they're living in and mm -hmm. adapt. Sure. So you will see women, you know, Muslim who are doctors and lawyers and they have to go to, they have to, they're professionals. So there's a way to adapt. Those who are more orthodoxy yeah. oriented, they will just fight that in a certain way and they will try to implement the traditional way in their own family and promote it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because they also believe that opening that that world will will have an impact in the in the society will have yeah, sure. some negative implications for society so but somebody like a like a young lady you know because huh. again islam has been planted in all over the world right mm -hmm. and it's expressed very differently from one country to the next so you go to sure. somewhere like malaysia we were in malaysia for a bit and mm -hmm. it's a predominantly Muslim country and it's completely yeah. different than a middle eastern or african muslim yeah. expression Mm -hmm. So you see a lot of, you know, modern young Muslim women who are in the workforce and yeah. could they 
point to the Quran and say it's okay? Or is there like a clear, are they, are they more kind of interpreting, you know, like, is it, has it already been defined and you're just kind of now loosely Muslim or considered loosely Muslim if you don't obey by certain rules? Yeah. Yeah. In the early development of Islam, there were two tendencies, those you call orthodoxy, orthopraxy, and modern Islam. So you see scholar who actually defend one way or the other. Okay. There are many scholars who believe that Islam should be adapted to the culture where to the culture of the people where it was promoted. Some said that it should come with the original culture of Prophet Muhammad, which is Arabic, and a lot of Muslim scholars refuted that and say it's okay to to be Muslim and not have a beer and not dress up like Arabs and still practice the five pillars of Islam and that's okay and adapt your culture to Islam, if only, but things that actually challenge directly the core should be rejected. But if beside that, anything else can be adapted. I see. So, so what you, are these five pillars? Oh, the five pillar, you have to believe that there is only one God. Okay. Not many, <laughs> not two, <laughs> not three, only one. Sorry, you Greeks out there. <laughs> <laughs> and of course, Muhammad is his prophet. Okay. Prophet then, meaning, because I know, you know, the discrepancy between Jesus being a Messiah and a prophet, but as a job description, what's the difference between a prophet and the Messiah? In terms um, of well, in Islam, the, the, the term Messiah is kind of a special mission. Okay. Okay. When you are a Messiah, you are giving a special title. You've been anointed in a special way. So, but prophet and messengers started since um, Adam. Yeah. Adam and others, Noah, Moses, you know, to Jesus. But it doesn't make you different than other prophets. It doesn't make you superior or inferior to other prophets. All prophets of God. Really? Uh, yes. So, and, so Muhammad, in terms of the Quran, is just another prophet. It's an, it's in a, a string of prophets. Yeah, it's the last prophet. Oh, wow. He's the last prophet. In the line of all the other prophets who came. Okay. And, and some prophets are given special mission in their time, in the place where they were born. And some given different, it's not normal prophet job. Got you know, it. God will give you a special or will say, well, you know, keep teaching them what what I ask you to teach, you know, other prophets, like you say, repeating the same thing, there's no God by God. Yeah. He's the only God that we need to surrender to, which is the meaning of Islam. Yeah. There's no need for a prophet saying old stuff. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. You still need to not kill anybody. Yeah. <laughs> Thanks, buddy. Yeah. Yeah. Pillar, yeah. You have, you know, one God, of course, five-time prayer a day, Doing the zakat, which is given to the poor in Islam, there is no pay ten percent. It's the giving to the poor, and you have to go to Mecca pilgrimage, and you have to observe the Ramadan, which is fasting thirty days every year. Yeah, that's that's a doozy. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's a tough one. Yeah. Is it? Can you have water during the day in Ramadan? No, no, like, you can't. You can't. Wow. You it's sunrise and sunset. You have yeah. to before sunrise. And you have, if you eat, let's say, 8 p.m., 
and you feel like okay before sunrise you can eat something like the next day like before yeah. the sun comes out you have to eat something but from the sun when the sun rises to the to the sunset you can eat you can put anything in your mouth <laughs> <laughs> yeah so it sounds like Muhammad was the first person advocating for intermittent fasting <laughs> yeah that's oh yeah that's interesting yeah so okay yeah thank you for that that's mm -hmm. important so long as those are the staples, non-negotiable, five no, pillars, no. don't touch them. No, but other yeah. stuff is somewhat negotiable, depending on if you fit into the orthodox or what was the other name? The orthopraxy, which orthopraxy. is more, yeah, it's, it's, it's more about, you it's know. like approximate faith. Yeah, you can just <laughs> open a little bit things. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, you know what? It's really interesting. It says more about humans than about religion because there are always people who are more inclined to sticking to the rules and other people who like to negotiate and yeah. to kind of push things forward. And both are important. You of need course, course. a skeleton and you need muscle in order to be a healthy person, right? So yeah. uh, the, the, yeah. the only problem is when you become too extreme in one way or the other. So yeah, that's the same that, in anything, yeah. That becomes a problem, yeah. So that, that good tension is good there. It's, it's good to balance both. Yeah, 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 I like that. Now in terms of, so I would love to clear this up because mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. in the Mormon faith or yeah. the Latter-day Saints, I realized you're not supposed to call them Mormons. That's actually, it used to be an insult. It's like the word Mooney. Yeah. You're supposed to say Latter LDS maybe. The main line is like, you know, one man, one woman have a bunch of kids, a mm -hmm. lot of kids, actually. But then there are these offshoots that started to practice polygamy, right? Mm -hmm. But that's not condoned in mm -hmm. the mainline faith. So a mm -hmm. lot of people associate, oh, Mormons can have as many, you know, wives, the men yeah. can have as But it's, mm -hmm. it's not really true of the yeah. majority of the LDS faith. Mm -hmm. But mm -hmm. I know that in Islam, too, there is there's, mm -hmm. you know, polygamy. There's yeah. one man, multiple women. And mm -hmm. so is that a cultural adaptation of the faith or is it a part of the faith itself? Is there anything about, because fidelity is really important, obviously, mm -hmm. but the idea of polygamy is like kind of a very loose interpretation of fidelity, <laughs> <laughs> right? Yeah. Um, the mm -hmm. harem model, it's like the Genghis mm -hmm. Khan, again, he had endless, mm -hmm. you know, I guess wives or mistresses or whatever, but what is the teaching there? Yeah, so first of all, we have to understand that Muhammad himself was a polygamist. So okay. he had more than one wife. That's first of all, his first life, Emeric Dija, who his first was, life. His, yeah, his first wife was he was single to her until she died. Okay. Okay. And then when she died, he remarried. Okay. When he remarried, he married more than one. So that those are two parts of Muhammad's life. So that's one thing. And Polygamy is permissible in the Quran. He said that it's okay for you to take more than one wife, but you have to love and treat them equally. Mm, that's yeah. a tough job. <laughs> yeah. So it's a tough job because it's hard to really love and treat people equally. It's not easy in that sense. Sure. Uh, it's not a matter. But I think the reason why this become okay in islam is because it was practiced before islam yeah so it's kind of culturally acceptable during the time of muhammad mm -hmm. and so it got adapted into it, his teachings because, yeah and it's it got adapted but the even the quran say it's better to take one i see 
Yeah, it's better to take one. But if you feel the need to take more than one for whatever reason, because I mean, reality is we live in different society with different challenges and different times. So women have, you know, difficult citizen in many traditional societies, socially disadvantaged. That's another reality. So that that play a major role into how women have to adapt to to accept this kind of uh, situation. So my sense is most Muslims will be okay with it, but as time goes by with modern society, with challenges of life and women autonomy, they will probably make their own choices. Because yeah, that's that's different. It seems a little bit like. It depends on which culture you grow up in, like where that, because like here in America, it's just straight up illegal to have multiple wives, right? Mm -hmm. I don't know about other countries, but it's culturally less acceptable in some countries and Mm -hmm. cultures, and it's more acceptable in others. So I guess that's a, that's a consideration too, because how something is expressed changes by, by the culture that I know Christianity, like Christmas and all that came from just this. Mm -hmm. You know, well, society's already doing this, so how do we fit this oh, yeah, in yeah. to okay. what they're already doing kind of thing? So I get that. But in Islam, it's up to four. You can go beyond four. You can't it's, go you beyond can't. four wives. Okay. Mm-hmm. It's limited to four. But I think the social economic structure in where you are, you're growing up in can also challenge you to just stay with one and get, have maybe, you know, a few kids because more wives, more, also more children. And more, you know, <laughs> challenging in, in terms of economic. Um, so liberalism is a big challenge for people who want to have more wives and more children. Uh, and I think that in the past, in traditional society, having more children was a sign of economic power. Because status. They, yeah, status. See, they will help you have a bigger farm and have more resources. But it's no longer the same, this, you know, situation today economically. Most yeah. people. Yeah, I'll go to school, and so I think it has to. It has something to do with the time and the culture, and things will naturally evolve. Yeah, that's, that's my understanding of it. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah, got it, got it, got it. But so the teachings are permissible. You're allowed to have one wife per mm-hmm. season of the year. So four. <laughs> yeah. uh, okay, and then with within that. Mm-hmm. So we covered the Quran saying mm-hmm. that, and, and you were mentioning that there's a lot of mention of marriage, mm-hmm. a little bit about sex. What about in the Sunni and the laws and the rules and the regulations? Yeah. What does it say about sexuality? Mm-hmm. Uh, there's mm-hmm. obviously probably some stuff not to do. Yeah. But is there any stuff that it, it encourages couples to take care of each other, to love mm-hmm. each yeah. other? Is anything definitely. like that? Definitely, yeah, definitely. It's uh, clearly said, actually, set up every details in terms of sexual relationship and anything that is going on in the house, you know? Really? For example, if the man needs to have sex, the woman has to actually understand that, you know, not to say no because of whatever happened during the day, you know, uh, just to let go. And because that sexual time will create more intimacy, connection, it's encouraged to have sex as a married couple legally. You know, because that's legal, that's part of the norm. But outside of that, it's completely not acceptable. Even for a man to have, it's not just for the woman, but a man who have another sexual and outside of marriage is is not permissible. Yeah. Before you have sex with another, normally you have to marry that person first. 
and you have to have the permission of the first wife. Yeah. Oh, that's cool. I like that. <laughs> Makes sense. So is there any discussion of sex being of God or is it just, is it more just like to settle the urges so that you can get back to appreciating God? Is there any kind of inference that, that mm -hmm. God wants to be a part of the sexuality and it's like a mm -hmm. holy act or is it just a human act mm -hmm. that's necessary within this relationship? Mm -hmm. And but it doesn't really discuss how God and sex um, mix. It's mostly about purity. It's pure. It is saint. It's holy. In terms of you know, God in Islam is very complex. It's like God doesn't get into human things. Oh, I get it. Because God is not a human being. There is a term in theology that says anthropomorphism that God is not a human being, and a human being is not God. Okay. The way God is seen is kind of not really involved with human things. It's more about we have to surrender to God okay. for the rules and regulation that was set for marriage is considered a social contract. It's not a kind of, how they say it, like a, a holy sacrament. Sacraments, no. In Islam, okay. it's a human thing. Okay. But it has to remain pure and only in a sense that he helps society be much more well-structured in order. Yeah, sounds really practical. Mm -hmm. Not, I don't know, overly airy-fairy or mm -hmm. romantic or anything. Mm -hmm. It's just really practical. Just let your guy have sex so he doesn't go crazy. Keep it all within the relationship. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah? Yeah? Okay. Uh, what about... Like the act of having children, or is that seen as being just a natural extension of sexuality, or is it part of your duty uh, as a as a Muslim to like produce children, mm -hmm. or like how do kids fit into the mix? Yeah, it's it's part of the uh, normal sex uh, marriage is sexuality is about having kids as well. So that's why things like taking some kind of medicine or whatever to not have kids is completely forbidden in um oh wow yeah uh, a child is coming is coming it's, it's god's will and that's it so no contraception no contraception yeah exactly how many kids coming is okay would uh, they like in a fully muslim country let's say a middle eastern country where it's like 100 percent buy-in it's like yeah. we are a muslim country would they probably then ban Condoms, or I, I think they will, they, yeah, they, they will probably ban it by law. Oh, wow. Is that from the Quran, though? Because did they have contraception back in Muhammad's they day? Do, they do not, but it's just interpretation of early scholars. I mean, as and as time goes by, scholar will stand and say, Well, if you're doing this, it's kind of going against gods who naturally made this to happen. Even the um, orthoproxy people, would they, uh, would they make some leeway there? I'm I'm sure some of them will be more open to contraception, but it's not going to be official. Okay. Yeah. It's like eating pork and drinking. It's completely forbidden. It's considered haram in Islam. But some Muslims do, but they don't stand and go and say, yeah, we have to justify it through the Quran or the Sunnah. <laughs> <laughs> they just do it in hiding. Yeah, they just do it and say, well, that's my choice and I take responsibility for it. Nice. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yep. So the act of kids and the act, I mean, having kids and the act of sex, they're one and the same. They should never be separated. Yeah, they should never be separated because 
one dimension of sexuality, of course, is intimacy, connection, but the other part of sexuality is having children. Yeah, 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 yeah. Well, I, I, actually, in my conversation with Dilip, the, he was talking about something similar with the Hindu faith, where they had kind of ideas that you should only have sex once a month. That's what one thing that he said. But if you do have sex, Mm-hmm. you should always be okay with the idea of having kids. Like it should just be a natural. Yeah, yeah. so that, that makes sense. It's very practical. It's similar, yeah. Mm-hmm. In that sense, it's, it's similar. So that's why, I mean, abortion is not acceptable. But it, it might happen that some, the Quran, the Sunnah did say that the women who might get in marriage and for some reason they can have kids. And the man is, if that comes out and it's the woman issue, the man is free to ask her permission to get another wife for having kids. Oh, wow. That'd be a tough conversation. (laughs) Called a pinch hitter. hitter. (laughs) Yeah, and and that's, it's pretty tough. And if the woman is, doesn't want that, then she have the freedom to divorce. She, oh, I was going to say, yeah. Well, also, what if the man can't produce? Because a lot of times it's the male sperm's problem. Mm -hmm. So can she get divorced in that situation? Or can she find... She she can get divorced or she accept the situation uh, for what it is. Or can Uh, you just adopt? I mean, is that okay? Yeah, adopt. Yeah, you can adopt. It's it's okay to adopt. Uh, It's not common practice, but it's it's okay. Permissible. Uh, it's permissible, yeah. And a lot of time, it's much more harder for women because the process for divorce is pretty hard for women. Sure. They have to go through a lot of ways, you know, imam and, and then somebody has to go through the Quran or the hadith to make sure that what is being decided is aligned with, with law. Wow. It's like very judicial, but religiously judicial. Exactly. Got it. Well, I've got to say, I saw an amazing video about pornography and its ill effects mm-hmm. produced by a Muslim organization. I don't know who they were, but it was like really well done, high budget. Mm-hmm. And so the Muslim world is talking about porn now, mm-hmm. finally, in yeah. this modern era. Yeah. Is there any, obviously the Quran had no idea you know, that the internet was coming, <laughs> uh, but about masturbation, about... Yeah. Self-satisfaction, is that is that discussed mm-hmm. at all? It's not clearly discussed, but it's it's actually being addressed by scholar and said anything that's it's called it's considered sexual deviation. It's actually clearly condemned. And you know, Islam is very strict in terms of how you live your sexual life, basically. Very, very, very strict. Basically, anything that's not in the clear line of abstinence, fidelity is considered Aram. And at that time, you know, of course, we didn't have uh, internet for porns and things like that. But at that time, infidelity, fornication was part of society. And if a woman or a man was caught into this kind of situation, they would be flagged like for hundreds of times or some, in yeah. some, or even further with stoning, you know. So it's, it was pretty intense. I mean... Uh, I knew a guy who lived in Afghanistan for a while and it still happens in some yeah. parts of the world. Stoning still exists to this day. Yeah. So that's that's how extreme people can go about this issue. And in modern era, because, you know, Islam, Islam is not really fighting any other religion per se, like against Christianity. No, 
the problem with with Western world is the fact that God is removed from from life, basically. <laughs> you know, it's yeah. like you know, God, you know, go to church, and uh, we're going to do what we want to do. That's really the problem with many Muslims who look at the Western world and say, "Yeah, you guys, this is gonna destroy your society." Sure. And we don't want that. If that's what you're bringing us, we don't want because in Islam, religion and state is not separate. Really, God is not separate from human affairs. Yeah. You know, I uh, I just gave a talk. There's a workshop on Saturday, like the Chicago area. I had to do it by Zoom. But one slide that I always include in my talks is really that you cannot build a society based off of kind of religious fear and shame. Mm-hmm. It won't be sustainable, but you also equally cannot create a society based off of justification, which is what the Western world has become. It's like, I can do what I want, right? Mm-hmm. Because neither one is sustainable because you're either living in fear mm-hmm. of messing up in the shame sure. society, or you're living in fear of the repercussions of all the stuff you just did because you justified your actions. Mm-hmm. Basically, they both lead to fear. They both lead to you being disconnected okay. from the real God, the loving God, the living God. So the middle ground is really to create a life. I mean, we we call it the high noon life because your parents talked about this high noon era where you just live completely an honest, sincere, you know, up, upright life where you're proud of your actions. There's no shame, but it's aligned with your virtues, really yeah. aligned with the core of your being. So mm-hmm. it's really intense, right? To To imagine, I was just reading an article about Bridget Bardot, who is this kind of sex symbol in the 60s, who denounced rules and regulations and said, I want to love whoever I want to love whenever for how long I want to love. And, you know, she had multiple divorces. She tried to commit suicide all the time. It's like, that's really where that leads. It's like, I can do whatever I want. Well, good luck. It's, you know, people have done that. But at the same time, to live in law alone, law without love is just, it, it's a heartless interaction. It's really just like living within certain parameters mm-hmm. based off of the fear of the unknown that will That's- always keep you stuck in place. So it's really important, yeah, to, to see that laws are important, but to understand them mm-hmm. and to not be afraid of breaking them, but keep them <laughs> out of love. Yeah. Right? It's, yeah. it's a complicated thing because when you hear about rules, you're like, oh, who are you to tell me? Especially in the Western world, like, who are you to tell me what to do? Yeah. But that's very childish just to reject something because your emotions don't agree with them. But it's also whatever the opposite of childish is to mm-hmm. just adhere to rigid laws because yeah. the, the laws are there. Yeah. You know, yeah. neither one is sustainable. Exactly. Yeah. And it's, it's beautifully said. I, I align with that. I think this is really good. You know, my understanding of unificationism is how to bring those two extremes together so that something beautiful can come out of it, which is not fear-based, but love-based, but also with some kind of uh, structure into it. In essence, I think that's what true parents were trying to tell the world. And how do you bring the West and the East together so that something beautiful can come out of it? How do you bring Christianity and Islam together so that something beautiful can come out of it? How do you bring traditional society and modern society together so something beautiful can I think that's what unificationism is about. And I think we have to start thinking more deeply about how do we make that happen? How do we create that? 
true parents did their best through marriages, you know. Yeah. <laughs> we were talking about earlier, you know, Mongolian and, and African. I look at my kids. It's something, you know, <laughs> unique. <laughs> right? <laughs> sure, yeah. You know, uh, Canadian, Mongolian, something, you know, you look at it. And, and I think that's what unification is about. And I want to invite all unification who tend to be too much on one side to probably open their mind to integrate. The scariest place to live is in that middle position because it's you're usually alone. It's usually uncharted territory, right? Like how can you live in a society mm-hmm. where people choose the rules rather than have the rules enforced upon them? Mm-hmm. They choose it out of love. Like if you look at governments where a lot of governments are heading they're not trusting their citizens. And that will always lead to totalitarianism. It will always lead to a revolt eventually. Yeah. You see that in the parent-child dynamic. If a parent is too strict, the kid's going to freak out eventually, right? Yeah. You have to learn how to trust. Mm -hmm. But it's so hard, especially if you don't understand the person, especially Mm -hmm. if they're like from a different culture, just to trust that they have good motivations and all that. And so... You know, you know, Eric, Eric Fromm was uh, is a psychologist. He said that kids growing up, they you know, when kids growing up, they need love from their parents, but also need some kind of rules and regulation set into place, yeah. so that you can create that balance when they're growing up. If you too much from letting the oh, you know, I love you, do whatever <laughs> you want, then yeah. they will end up being completely a problem. Society. Monsters. They yeah. won't respect anything when yeah. they go out there. Even the police is stopping them. They will just do whatever they want because they feel like, yeah, you know, my parents never told me unconsciously, of course, that I should respect any rules and regulations. Sure. And if you're too strict on rules and regulation as well, they grow up becoming a little bit too rigid, and they can't love anybody, honestly speaking. They can even be a little bit, little bit more forgiving to those to situation, and that's a big problem in society. All the terrorist group that we having in society, people become too extreme in the yeah. way they things. It comes from the way that what what was fostered into the way they are growing up. This is absolute right. Yeah, can do well. It's about control, right? You're yeah. trying to control the way society is yeah. by forcing everybody rather than by trying to do it out of love. It's interesting because the two sides that we're talking about, like the more kind of fundamentalist orthodoxy versus the kind of loose justification, they kind of lead back to a similar place of control. Because Mm -hmm. if you look at, say, a very religious place, they really try to control the actions of the people, Mm -hmm. including sex, right? Whereas in the West, you can literally have all day, every day, a sexual buffet and mm-hmm. nobody's allowed to judge you. And it always ends up back in control. When you lose control, then you're controlled by this thing. Mm-hmm. And in, in terms of sexuality, we're talking about pornography and all this, which is all about control. Like you're mm-hmm. controlled by this thing. The mm-hmm. theme of porn is always dominance and control. So mm-hmm. it's really all about control. And the only way that you can't be controlled is to be free. Yeah, And that yeah. freedom comes with, trusting it's like trust is the opposite of control and it's a very different spirit right it's a very different energy to Mm -hmm. trust somebody and let them make their mistakes or whatever versus trying to control their actions which never works anyway right but it's like a different spirit yeah i think it's great when somebody made a mistake and then you help them learn from their mistakes yeah take responsibility 
it's much more effective for them because when they're facing the same issue, their conscience will tell them, you know what? This has consequences that I don't really like myself. Sure. Maybe I shouldn't do that. That kind of law, I mean, has the scripture said, it's kind of written in your heart. Yeah. Huh? That's the thing. Like, if you look at marriage, mm-hmm. it's so hard, right? You know. Yeah. <laughs> I know, you know. I know. I know. Yeah. I know. <laughs> That's written in my heart, the good yeah. and the bad and everything, right? Especially with Mongolian, you know. <laughs> <laughs> They're tough. They will kick your butt around. So, so there's like living by the law of marriage will not produce the love that is the purpose of marriage. Mm-hmm. because you're just staying married because of some law. Mm-hmm. But, you know, leaving your marriage or just doing whatever you want because you get bored or whatever will not lead you to that ultimate love either. It's, again, it's like abiding by the rules, but because of love that I choose to stay with you, not because of some stupid law mm-hmm. and not because, you know, of my sexual urges that I'm gonna, I'm going to stay with you because I know that that's what my heart wants deep down inside. Yeah. And so, yes, that's all it's that's the funny thing is it's all already written, all the scriptures and everything of all of history already written in our hearts. It's just we don't speak the same language as our heart most of the time. We speak the same language as our mouth for food, as our penis for sex or vagina for sex. But we don't often speak fluent heart. Mm -hmm. That's a very good point. Yeah. Thank you. Mm -hmm. So is there anything Missing, we should start wrapping up. Is there anything missing from this conversation about Islam and intimacy or uh, romance or sexuality or marriage that I didn't ask that you'd like to well, clarify? Uh, you know, in Islam, romance is, I think this is an important thing that I need to mention. Romance is something that people are very careful about because what happened when you marry only based on Romans, and then later you realize that you don't feel it anymore. What do you do? There's a whole, like, people don't trust it very much. Like, so people as in within as, the Islam faith? Islam faith, yeah. It's kind, kind of, the, the scholar kind of, be careful about Romans because it's not really something you can rely on hmm. to build something solid over the time, Okay. So whatever you're feeling now, it's okay. If you want to feel it, it's fine. If you're feeling it, fine. But if you want to get married, you have to make sure, you have to know that this is something that, that you will have to do for, for the rest of your life. And it, and it will take some serious responsibility and decision-making to go through it. Um, so not, not that romance is necessarily a bad thing, but just don't base your relationship off of it. Um, yeah, don't make an absolute decision on that because... If you do, then three years later, if you don't feel the romance, what are you going to do? Well, we know what Hollywood does. We know what you know, <laughs> politicians well, do. <laughs> of course. that Yeah. Those, so Islam will say you can't, you can't divorce based on how you feel right now. You no. Know, and so is divorce within the faith of Islam, the Muslim faith? Is it? Uh, you have to go through the imam. You have to go through a pro- this yeah. judicial process. It's not encouraged at all. But it's still, it's, there's, there are issues that might lead to divorce for sure. But it's, everything is done not to create divorce because divorce will create problems in the family, yeah. Yeah, family structure and things like that, which, which extend to the society. So, so everything w- is done not to get to that point. 
everything meaning like intervention like counseling intervention, from the, the yeah. religious leaders and stuff yeah intervention counsel support and taking time to reconsider things but it did happen at a certain point when people feel like well it's not gonna work they accept it but in general it's not really encouraged at all well that's cool i mean we have that in our faith, this ideal year kind of thing where it's like, okay, you feel this now, let's wait a year. Don't decide based on this present state that you're in. Decide in a year from now after you've really tried to make it work, right? Mm -hmm. I'm sure it's way different, but similar. Yeah, that's really cool. I like it. Just basically you started that with don't base your relationship off of romance and mm -hmm. don't get divorced based off of negative feelings. So don't be a slave to your feelings, yeah. essentially. That's right. That so that's sense. important. I think that was very important for people yeah. to know because, I mean, the world today, everything is based on how I feel about this person. Even after 10 years of marriage, you start feeling something for another person out there and then the whole family get difficulties because of, you know, what you felt now. Yeah. And that's not acceptable. The only thing they will, you know, damage control, <laughs> damage control just marry her and give the other one. That's kind of a damage control thing, I, I think. Yeah. Uh, so that, you know, you don't you don't put the, uh, the first structural family into some kind of dislocations and stuff like that. It's absolutely insane, but we've, we're so used to it, like in, in the Western world. But it's, 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 it doesn't make any sense mm -hmm. that you would start a relationship just based off of feelings or end a relationship based off feelings just as two individuals yeah. because there are so many societal implications to that. Yeah. It really, it's just like, and I don't want to go off too much, but in all previous iterations of relationships, like in different tribes and cultures, yeah. you always have to go through a group of people to get to your future spouse. You have to talk to their parents. You got to oh, yeah, perhaps some tribal elder or something like that to mm -hmm. make sure that you're making a sober decision, not just based off of physical attraction or whatever. Yeah. So there's a filtration system to get into the relationship. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And when, if you were to break up, you know, or divorce or whatever back then, you're losing half of the tribe or whatever. So there's mm -hmm. like major repercussions, which... Yeah. There still are today these repercussions. We just don't feel them. Just like when we produce garbage, mm -hmm. we don't see where it goes, but we're making this huge heap of garbage. And same with our decisions within the family. Mm -hmm. We might not see it directly, but it's impacting. The stats are very clear, like the fatherlessness or divorce, mm -hmm. what it does. Yep. There's so many like ripple effects, but we don't directly see the impact and we don't feel it. So mm -hmm. it, it feels like, oh, I can just get divorced and there's no repercussions. I'll mm -hmm. just move on. Yep. I'll heal. But actually, there's so much more to it that yep. used to be factored in because the impacts were you could see them in your the people that you're surrounded by. Now it's people that you don't know in the society, yeah. right? And, you know, even just not just society, but the, the psychological challenge divorce kids go through is incredibly difficult because of, you know, there are so, so many data about this. Yeah. And I think the point here is to share it more, you know, to share and talk about, a little bit about it for people to, to make sure that marriage is a serious thing. You don't just, don't rush it. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and it's if, true. And, and something that we can impact directly yeah. is just making sure that we are connected to a tribe of people that yeah. we're connected to we have accountability outside of our marriage exactly. you know for the quality of our marriage because yeah. if we're not taking care of each other we're walking out of the house in a bad mood we're going to treat people bad there's always repercussions whether we're cognizant of it or not and, yeah. uh, and from a developmental perspective i tell people also sometimes that 
challenges we're facing in marriage is a good thing. Yeah. <laughs> it helps us grow. Yeah. You know, because we, we only see as negative, we only see the negative sure. part of it because we are going through uncomfortable feelings, you know? Yeah. Angry frustrations and stuff like that. But it's it's an opportunity for growth as well. Yeah. If you transform that, overcome it, you become a better person. So yeah, that's an important thing for people to know. So that, you know, like things happen and then you don't just, uh, you know, run away and hide somewhere. It's very true. It's the uncomfortable feelings that you're talking about is just the edge, the limitations of your heart Mm -hmm. that you're just rubbing up against how limited you are. Mm -hmm. And by escaping, it doesn't fix the feeling. It just means that you're delaying the inevitable. You're going to get to that point again until you expand beyond that. I think that's what needs to be taught a little bit more to even mostly our second generation or younger people who are getting into blessings. They have to know that just doing the ceremony is a good thing, but it's the blessing itself is a process. And mm. through that process, you're going to grow and grow can be very painful. <laughs> so people have to be aware of this. Mm-hmm. So marriage is about growth. It's not just the like, oh, I'm happy. You know, we are so happy together. Everything is like the first day of marriage where, you know, we all dancing. Yeah, good. Yeah. Yeah. But when you enter marriage itself as a process, blessing as a process, you have to understand that growing is part of it. And that growing is painful sometimes. And, Absolutely. And, yeah, so, we we sometimes get reports from young, like people who've been together with us, working on their sexual integrity with us for a long time that just go to the blessing. And then mm-hmm. right after us, they're texting us, hey, I just, I'm having sex six times a day, something like this. And we're like, okay, <laughs> great. But don't, you know, just understand, play the long game. <laughs> like, <laughs> don't go crazy now. Like, just make sure that you're respecting each other now and you're not uh-huh. getting too excited. Mm-hmm. Something sustainable. Like, don't, I'm not trying to like rain on their parade, but just make uh-huh. sure that you don't expect this forever without, yeah. you know, a day off. Like, let's mm-hmm. just calm down. You're young, you're in love, great. This is like a season. Mm-hmm. Just know that there are other seasons too and that it's all beautiful. Exactly. Kids comes and, you know, <laughs> changed and, yeah. It's, and plates get smashed. Yeah, and... <laughs> <laughs> it's a journey, you know, and that yeah. journey, there is so much to unfold in that journey. So I think it, it's beautiful to to really emphasize people who are getting in the blessing so that they don't just get the mindset like, well, because I take holy wine or whatever and things like that, I got blessed by two parents, two parents, like lay their hands. So we are good. Yeah. Nope. You got to grow, man. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. That's kind of very important to understand. Yeah. I appreciate it. And yep. thank you. This is, this is great. I learned a lot myself. I'm sure everybody else did. Sure. And very insightful because when you meet somebody, you have a lot of assumptions. And mm-hmm. if your assumption, like it's inevitable that you're not, it's human nature to kind of assume certain things. But the more information that you have embedded in that assumption, the healthier it is. So yeah. I think to understand the Muslim faith is really, really important because that's something like over a billion people are, there's over a billion Muslims, right? Yes, over a billion Muslims is fastest growing religions in this 21st century. And probably the people that are going to take over the world, because nobody else is having babies other than <laughs> yeah. Muslims at this point. The the LDS church and Muslims are going to take over the world. That's right. Yeah. In the not too distant future, I don't know if you've been reading about birth rates, but they're plummeting in pretty much every country except for Muslim countries. Yeah. They're not sustainable. In, only in African and Middle Eastern Muslim mm-hmm. countries are they 
you know, and, above and, sustainability. And, and children growing up, the practice of faith is very important because what is happening in Islam, you don't, you're not just telling children, you're not just telling your kid praying, you praying. Yeah. And they see you doing it. Yeah, yeah. They naturally follow you in doing it. I like it so much, man. Thank you. Thank you for catching us up loosely. Mm -hmm. Yep. And mm -hmm. to inform us. And I'd like to have you on again to talk about other stuff because you have a wealth of knowledge. You're a well-studied man. So it's good to pick the brain of somebody who knows something. <laughs> um, so it was a pleasure. Sure. Yeah. I hope you found that episode enjoyable. And before we go, I wanted to challenge you to take your life on, to take your life to the next level. And if you're struggling in any way with pornography, with masturbation, with issues of sexuality that just are not helping you at all, if you want to reclaim your life, reclaim your eyes and ears, your time, your energy, then take our free 15-day challenge. If you go to highnoon.org, you can find our 15-day challenge right there on the front page. Take it. It's absolutely free, no strings attached. We've designed it to help you gain some level of momentum in your journey of sexual integrity so that you can take the next step, whatever that may be. It could be to go to our deeper Ascend program, which is a 90-day program we have. It could be to reach out to that accountability partner. It could be to just take the whatever steps you need to take in your journey to build the life of heavenly sexuality that you deserve. So go to highnoon.org right now if you want to break up with porn and start to get engaged with the life of your dreams and eventually marry it. Doesn't it sound nice? So go to highnoon.org to find all of those resources and more. It's been a slice.